Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online and via your ABC Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Now today on the show, we'll meet a woman whose passion for animal justice led her to the New South Wales Upper House. She'll tell us what she plans to do for animals and people now that she has a seat at the table. Stay with us for that. Well, you don't have to be a rugby fan to know that Wallaby star Israel Folau has been a big news story over the past few months. On April 10, he posted these words on his personal social media account. Quote, warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you. Repent. The fallout was immense. Rugby Australia warned Falau that he had breached his player code of conduct by posting homophobic comments on social media. After examination of the event, this happened. Well, Israel Falau's football career appears to be in tatters right now. Rugby Australia saying it is going to rip up his contract. And it no longer mattered that Falau was one of the most talented players in the game. He and his $4 million contract we're no longer together. Now, this story has ignited a discussion across the nation that has polarised opinion like rarely before. Why? Well, I've invited two experts to navigate what all this means. Joining me in Sydney is Peter Curdy. He's an adjunct associate professor of law at Notre Dame. He's also a senior research fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies. As I've stated on this program before, CIS, that's the think tank I head. My other guest is Professor Catherine Gilber. Catherine researches freedom of speech, human rights and public discourse at the University of Queensland's School of Political Science and International Studies, and she's in our Brisbane studio. Kath, Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Thank Great you. to be here. Now, let's start by hearing both of your opinions about what the exact issues are that we need to address. Uh, Peter Curdy, what's at the heart of what's dividing public opinion? Well, I think Israel Falau has done two things that run counter to the culture. The first thing is that he's talked very clearly and openly about his religious beliefs, something that we're not really accustomed to doing in Australia. Uh, we just don't tend to talk about God publicly. But the other thing that he's done is, whereas Australians are generally very accepting of LGBTI people, there is a small but very powerful group that wants to move the community beyond acceptance to endorsement, where dissent is not tolerated. And Israel Falau refuses to to go along with that. Yeah, but there seems to be a difference between how people define, you know, freedom of speech, religious freedom, discrimination. Kath, what's the real issue here? The real issue, in my opinion, is that all human rights are not absolute and all human rights stop at the point at which your exercise of your own right impairs somebody else's exercise of their human rights. So what we have here is a difference of opinion over what the implications are of what Israel Folau said. So in my view, Israel Folau has engaged in discrimination. Okay. This is not about religious freedom, it's about discrimination. Peter, freedom, offence, discrimination. What's your line? Well, I agree with Catherine's assessment of, of human rights, and I think they are not absolute. I think that's very important. I don't think this is an issue, really, of religious freedom. I think it's gone beyond that now. I don't think that Israel Folau has discriminated against in in any more of the sense that he's just made a decision to he's chosen uh, one group over another. He, and he's not vilified uh, and not incited violence against this particular group. But Peter Curtis, should there be limits to what freedom of speech allows people to say? 
Well, I think we have to be very careful about where we want to draw those limits. What, what's wrong with him expressing an opinion? And remember that this opinion is a, it's a conditional warning, as it were. He's saying, essentially saying, I love these sinners, including homosexuals, and I want you to repent because in my religious belief, you will go to hell if you don't. So he's issued a warning out of love. And Israel Folau's post vilifies more than one element of society. Kath Gelber, what is it about homosexuality that has really triggered the greatest response? Well, the answer to this question responds directly to what Peter just said. Absolutely what Israel Folau said vilified homosexuals. And the reason that the issue with homosexuals is more important than liars or adulterers or drunks is that there is no entrenched systemic discrimination or bias in our society against liars or against adulterers. There is entrenched systemic discrimination against homosexuals. And by saying what he said, what Israel Folau was saying was that Gay people have no place on this earth. They must repent, i.e. they must become not gay in order to be acceptable. But now, what, that's what crosses the line. That is what is vilification. Peter Curdy. But what is wrong with expressing that opinion? Again, I think Catherine's analysis is right, except I don't think it's vilification. But if that's what you believe what's wrong with expressing it, which is why I'm concerned that we've reached the point now in a society where we simply cannot dissent from certain positions that are laid down. Kath Gilber. It is not just an expression of opinion. To think that is to say that when you're talking, all you're doing is expressing your thoughts. But we have decades of scholarship that tell us that words can do things, words can do good things and words can do bad things. And there are ways of expressing yourself that constitute a form of discrimination. And that is why we recognise that in law as hate speech or as vilification. I think Catherine and I are going to disagree about whether or not uh, these uh, this amounts to vilification because it seems to me that in Australia at the moment that it, it, being gay is no bar to holding the highest office, highest offices in the land, to holding commanding positions uh, in business and in, in the academic world. So I, I wonder to what extent this discrimination, which certainly was very real and I think very toxic in an earlier generation uh, is is as prevalent today. Kath, some commentators, they say that we're already over-instructed by the nanny state, governments, institutions. Are we headed towards becoming the nanny state many libertarians think we already are? Absolutely not. What we have in this country are very narrowly drawn, very carefully constructed laws that don't say that you can't talk about particular topics. So Israel Folau would have been free to say, as he has, has in fact said, I don't support same-sex relationships and I don't support same-sex marriage. And if that's all he'd said, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Okay, GoFundMe has famously closed down Folau's request for money to back his legal challenge. Kath, is that fair? Yes, GoFundMe has a policy that is in sync with Australian law, in sync with international human rights law and in sync with public opinion in Australia that wishes to combat discrimination. Uh, Peter, uh, Folau's a millionaire at least. Uh, how is it moral to ask the public for money? He's using GoFundMe to correct what he perceives to be an injustice. And GoFundMe is clearly a barometer of public opinion because he's attracted nearly two, $2 million of support, even though the ACL has taken over the funding. So whether or not he can afford it, I think, is beside the point. Well, the, what, no, Tom, if I may just say yeah. so, what's important is that he's attracting a great deal of public support through donations to the site, which suggests that there are many, many people who agree that not necessarily they agree that with Falau's views about the death destination of sinners, but they are, they believe, they are committed to his the freedom that he should have to express those views. Kath, is Australia angry about censorship? 
I think there are lots of reasons why people are giving to the fund. One of them is, of course, that he's a star footballer and so he has a lot of fans. Another one is that he has a particular religious community that's supporting him. So it's not possible to say that people are against censorship just because they're giving him money. This issue has become much bigger than an issue of his religious freedom and so people are giving money for all kinds of reasons. Catherine, you've said that uh, Falau himself is a victim here. Why? Falau's caught up in something that's much larger than himself. This is an orchestrated and organised campaign by conservatives who are evidently frustrated at the decades of progress that have been made in human rights and anti-discrimination, particularly in law, but also in hearts and minds in terms of public opinion. And this movement is now somewhat cleverly using the language of human rights itself to try and harness public support for winding back those protections. I I don't think this is a push back in a sense. I think it's a reaction to the tyranny of tolerance, that tolerance is demanded any dissent from what needs to be tolerated, what is required to be tolerated, will not be tolerated. And I think that is what people are reacting to. They would say we've reached a tipping point where now you simply cannot express a dissenting point of view that departs from that that's asserted by, you know, the zeitgeist, as it were. And Kath, how do you see this ending? I'm very, very concerned that people like Peter deny that discrimination still exists simply because there are one or two people in positions of power who may be, for example, gay and that therefore discrimination doesn't exist. Look at the research about what happened during the same-sex marriage survey. Look at the research on what happens to young gay and lesbian people when role models like Flower make comments like this. Incidents of suicide and self-harm increase. It is absolutely the case, both in my research and in lots of social science research, discrimination is well and truly alive and well. And we must not get to the point where we say, oh, discrimination is over now. We can stop this fight. I hope that people take from this the message that we can need to maintain our posture. We need to maintain our stance against discrimination and bigotry. A lively debate. Catherine Gelber, Peter Curdy, thanks so much for being on RN today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Catherine. Catherine Gelber is a researcher of freedom of speech, human rights and public discourse at the University of Queensland's School of Political Science and International Studies. And Peter Curdy is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies, is also affiliated with Notre Dame, and he specialises in religious freedom and ethics. You're an RN. Well, do you often wonder how our ancestors could have universally engaged in conduct now considered unconscionable, such as slavery or the treatment of Aboriginal people after British settlement? Yes, retrospective judgment tends to make us feel superior to past generations, doesn't it? In fact, it should really evoke humility. Surely some contemporary practices will be deemed equally detestable by succeeding generations. Which ones do you think? Well, for Charles Krauthammer, the legendary American conservative columnist who died a year ago this week, he believed it will be our treatment of animals. Our great-grandchildren, this was Krauthammer's belief, they will find it difficult to believe that we actually raised, herded and slaughtered animals on an industrial scale for what? For the eating. Well, a newly elected member of the New South Wales Upper House agrees. She represents the Animal Justice Party. She's been a vegan for about two decades. She's won three bodybuilding competitions. She's only in her mid-30s. She's our next guest. Emma Hurst, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you very much. Charles Krauthammer, uh, pretty stirring words, weren't they? Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is really an idea, that, you know, that's time has come. 
we're just seeing a massive growth in this movement and more and more people are resonating with those words. Yeah, Krauthammer, in his column in the Washington Post, uh, which was nationally syndicated, he said, one measure of human moral progress amid and despite the savageries we visit upon each other is how we treat the innocent in our care and none are more innocent than these beautiful animals. Absolutely. Now, people usually base their votes on issues like jobs, health, education, the economy. Why did people abandon their usual concerns to vote for a single-issue party like yours? Look, I think that, you know, the Animal Justice Party doesn't really consider animal protection a single issue. You know, when you look at single-issue parties like the Voluntary Euthanasia Party, you know, that's one bill, one issue that will create an enormous change if that bill passes. However, the issue of animal protection is actually much broader. When you think about um, native wildlife, when we think about species extinction, when we think about deforestation, um, factory farming, uh, human health associated with the use of antibiotics in factory farming, the issues are actually really broad-reaching and there's so much that needs to be done. And I think the Australian public are seeing that our government is actually failing to protect animals in this country. Um, we're seeing expose after expose of animal cruelty. We're seeing the RSPCA in various states around Australia saying that animal cruelty cases are increasing and people are disgusted by animal cruelty. You know, people want to see change. And it's just reaching a real tipping point. Okay, so you've come to Parliament and you seek legislative change. Let's go through some of those issues. You want to change dairy farming to plant-based farming. Look, you know, the dairy farming industry is in crisis. Um, now, I'm also a psychologist, so I come from a, a psychological background. And we've got a real problem in the dairy industry. The First of all, we've got welfare problems. So, you know, bobby calves are taken from their mothers and sent to slaughter the male bobby calves. Um, we've got mother cows that are being over-milked with mastitis, with lameness. So there's a lot of animal cruelty concerns within the dairy industry. We've also got a consumer shift where people are switching more and more to plant-based milks uh, for ethical reasons, for health reasons. And then we've got another problem on top of that where we've got dairy farmers themselves uh, explaining that they're suffering from depression, from anxiety, suicide even, reaching higher, higher in rates in amongst farmers. They're not getting enough money for their milk. They're struggling financially. Now, how does somebody with a, you know, that's struggling mentally, that is struggling financially, care for these animals as well? You're essentially representing the decline of their industry. Why, why would they cooperate? Because I think that we need to look at where consumers are moving. So what, where are uh, people changing their buying power? That's something that, you know, we need to look at. And it's a difficult conversation to have with anybody. Um, but we need to be having these hard conversations. We can't sit back and watch an industry collapse and say, well, you know, it'll just happen. I think it's actually government's role to sit down with the industry and to actually say, look, Let's start to work towards a supportive transition program to help these farmers to switch to sustainable industries, to industries that we can see, foresee a growing amongst consumers. You know, whatever sort of plant-based products that people are buying. Australia has the fourth fastest growing vegan market in the whole world. 
So we're seeing a huge consumer shift and we're seeing a lot of people project that that's going to keep increasing plant-based agriculture. What about the production, phasing out the production of eggs in this country? People buy more and more free range. Isn't that enough? Look, I think that on the egg industry, we do need to start with the battery cage industry. The majority of eggs that are being farmed right now in Australia are still in battery cages. And that's because a lot of battery caged eggs are going inside products, which consumers don't realise they're even buying caged eggs. Um, so if you go and buy you know, a pie, for example, and you might say, I don't buy caged eggs, but you've gone and bought a pie and you've bought a caged egg in that pie. Um, so most caged eggs are finding their way into mayonnaises, cakes, pastries, all these other products so people don't realise they're still supporting that caged egg industry. Okay, now we at RN have many listeners uh, in regional Australia and they represent companies and industries that rely on livestock. And I can imagine many of them hearing this would say that they rely on these industries to support their families. How can you work with them when the stakes are so high for the average worker? Look, the Animal Justice Party always has this really strong open door policy and you'd be surprised at how many uh, times we've actually sat down and work with, worked with people within industries. Um, and, and that goes, you know, within the wool industry in regards to mulesing. Um, we've also have spoken with dairy farmers. We've spoken with egg farmers. Uh, we've spoken with industries that use animals in entertainment. And that's because we know that, you know, we have to involve people. It has to be a collaborative process to try to make change. Yeah, we've been here before. I mean, you may recall, I think it was around 2011, 2012, Prime Minister Julia Gillard, she imposed a sudden ban on the live cattle trade to Indonesia. This was in response to a Four Corners expose. We understood when we took this decision that it was going to have an impact on the industry, but we needed to make the right decisions here. So we're going to go through this process of suspending now so we can get assurance about where Australian cattle end up and how they are ultimately treated. Uh, I understood that it was going to impact on industry. That was Prime Minister Gillard a few years ago. Now, she didn't bother consulting Jakarta in advance and thus threatened food security for a substantial section of the Indonesian population. Look, I mean, I, I find it quite distressing, you know, re-listening to that as well, just because we've seen failure after failure after failure of the live animal export industry even since that action. And it's still, it's still going and the current government is pushing to increase it. Um, and this is a, a point of real stress and concern for the majority of Australians. They want to see this industry ended. What about those protests? I mean, are they do they help or hinder the cause? I think of those 150 or so animal rights activists who sat in the main streets of Melbourne holding slogans to promote veganism. Uh, there have been more extreme forms of animal protests like farm invasions. Does that help or hinder the cause, Emma? Look, we very strongly support the right to peaceful protest. Um, and we've seen peaceful protests, you know, often create community divide. I mean, that's the reason for a protest. And it's interesting that that particular protest got so much attention. I think there was a union protest that blocked the streets of Melbourne a week later, um, which maybe got a couple of very small newspapers' attention. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very interesting that, that this particular protest gathered so much I think much Michael McCorback, the, the Deputy Prime Minister, said that they should get a job. 
Well, I can guarantee you that most of those people probably took a day off from their jobs. <laughs> the amount of times that I've been told to get a job, um, you know, I, I can't count it and yet... Well, you've got a job for the next eight years, correct? <laughs> Absolutely, but I'll probably get still get told to get a job. <laughs> You're listening to Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. I'm speaking with Emma Hurst from the Animal Justice Party. She's the newly elected member of the New South Wales Upper House. Emma, 12% of all Australians describe themselves as vegetarians. Their aims and habits are pretty clear. What do vegans believe in? So veganism is an entire lifestyle. So you've sort of got plant-based vegans, which are diet-based, and and some people may identify as plant-based for health reasons. Um, so eating a fully plant-based diet can reduce cholesterol, can reduce saturated fat, um, can reduce the risk of various diseases. There are people that do it for environmental reasons. Um, a vegan diet has significantly less emissions, significantly less uh, water usage, um, but a lot of people now are doing it for ethical reasons, and that's where veganism and that umbrella sort of falls into. And a vegan identifies as their whole life as moving away and making as little harm as possible. So that also means what we wear as well. Crude question perhaps, but some of our listeners might be listening to this and say, oh, geez, isn't veganism for rich people? It's, it's an interesting thing when you actually look at other countries around the world. You know, these plant-based diets are, you know, the more common diet and and in you know in Thailand and in India it's the meat eating diets which are the expensive sort of wealthier mm. diets here in Australia you know look i mean you could go all out and buy all these you know expensive spirulina and supplements and all this sort of jazz but it's completely unnecessary if you eat a whole food plant based diet it's actually cheaper now do you have to be a vegan to join the animal justice party no absolutely not um, our candidates are, are vegan if they're running for parliament uh, but our do they members have to be? Yes. So we do ask that our candidates are vegan, um, simply because if somebody's then elected on an animal justice platform, you know, we have to sort of walk the talk, essentially. Yeah. Now, how's veganism perceived by other politicians, say, on both left and right? It's actually really interesting. I thought that there would be a significant pushback when I when I got into the upper house, but there's actually sort of been this bizarre level of interest, um, even actually probably more so amongst our sort of right-wing conservative <laughs> politicians, um, particularly on the first day when we uh, were all being sworn in and um, they brought out all this sort of vegan food and people just started glaring at me and saying, why is your food better than ours? People were getting prawn toast and we had freshly made hummus and vegetable lasagna. And <laughs> that might make it easier to negotiate with the gnats. Oh, I think so. I think they've been uh, eyeing out my food quite regularly. Now, there is a growing interest in animal welfare on the right. Um, how do you explain that? I don't think that animal cruelty is a left or right issue. I think that the majority of Australians want to see changes. In fact, there was actually a study recently by the Federal um, Parliament of Australia within the Department of Agriculture that found that 95% of Australians have uh, concerns about animal welfare in the farming industry and 9 out of 10 want to see reform in the farming industry. So that means that this is a mainstream concern. And yet you've received death threats. I think that we're receiving death threats from people who are very nervous about change. And, you know, not that I would ever sort of poo-poo those death threats. I think it's very serious. But I think that there's always going to be resistance to change. Are there any companies or industries you're working with to improve the conditions for animals? 
We are working across the board. Um, so at the moment, we've actually just got up an inquiry into the battery cage egg industry within New South Wales. Um, so we've just opened up for submissions and that's open to submissions from all members of the public. And it's also open to submissions from animal welfare, animal rights organisations, and of course, from industry. So we want to hear from everyone on that. What about dolphin welfare? I think of SeaWorld. I, I've taken my daughters to SeaWorld a few times and they enjoy it immensely. But this has got to be a big issue for the Animal Justice Party. Absolutely. This is a massive focus of mine as well. Um, look, when I was a child, I asked to go to SeaWorld as well. I love dolphins. But if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have asked to go as a child. What I realise now is that you can't ever really meet the needs of an animal in captivity, uh, particularly an animal that's as intelligent as a dolphin, where we're taking them out of an ocean environment and putting them in a backyard chlorinated pool. And the biggest issue is that 52% of bottlenose dolphins that are bred in captivity don't live past one year. And the ones that do live for over 50 years. And so that means that the dolphins that I watched when I was a child are still doing the same ridiculous tricks yeah. day in, day out for 12-hour shifts without mm. breaks. There's surely been some progress over the last 20, 30 years. In New South Wales, there has been progress. So various animal welfare groups have been working with the one facility that's in New South Wales, which is now called Dolphin Marine Conservation Park, and they have voluntarily agreed to put up a policy not to breed their dolphins anymore so that the dolphins that they have will be the last of their generation wow. in New South Wales. They're also open, and what we're trying to work with the New South Wales government on is building a sea pen to actually retire these dolphins into a sea sanctuary. They can't be released because they're captive bred. They don't know how to survive in the wild. One of these dolphins only nine years old. So he's probably got another 40 years left where he can live, you know, in a cove essentially around Coffs Harbour. And tourists can come and sit on the rocks and actually watch a pod of dolphins called semi-wild essentially, mm, mm. Um, which will be a beautiful thing to have in Coffs Harbour. My and guess the first is, in the world My too. guest is Emma Hurst and she's from the Animal Justice Party. Emma, let's put this uh, broadly in a global context. Uh, are there any overseas examples of successful animal welfare policy? Absolutely. Um, you know, all around the world, we're seeing bans on the use of animals for circuses. Just recently, we saw in Canada um, a ban on the captivity of whales and dolphins. Um, so I think that we've got a really good chance of getting the same thing happening here in New South Wales. I think Netherlands has a party for animal justice too, correct? Absolutely. They were actually the first party for animals um, all around the world. And now we've got about 11 in the EU. Um, and there's another one, or I think there might be two in the US. Mm, mm. Um, and so this is a growing movement worldwide um, to actually bring animals into politics. And what else would you like to see established to have a global approach to animal welfare? I mean, is that even possible? Look, I think that I think that it will get that way. I think that you know when we start to you know build these parties, I think we need to continue to work together. Um, we need to work united. Um, and look, I think that when something happens in another country like Canada, you know that helps to create a precedence for what can happen you know, in Australia. And there are organisations like World Animal Protection, for example, who are working internationally. You know, if we get a ban on the breeding, for example, of, of dolphins and whales for, for captivity, for entertainment, as does Canada, then these international groups can actually work with other countries to say, look, it's happened, it's worked, 
this is how they did it. Okay, Emma, now back to Charles Krauthammer. Now, he said in that column in the Washington Post, meat-eating's extinction will ultimately come, and it will be market-driven as well. Science will find dietary substitutes that can be produced at infinitely less cost and effort. Absolutely. And this is something that gets me really, really excited because it's something that I can see happening. In fact, in California, they've actually got a conference on this very topic. And you're right, once they're cheaper and healthier, Mm. it would be bizarre to say, no, I want an animal killed just for the sake of killing an animal. Um, People are going to switch their diets. And I think it's a huge shift that we're going to see within my lifetime. And I think, you know, in, in one or two generations, Uh, we could even see an extinction of of people consuming animals. Emma, great to have you on RN today. Thank you. Emma Hurst is from the Animal Justice Party. She's the newly elected member of the New South Wales Upper House. Well, that's all from us today on Between the Lines. You can listen again to this and all our past episodes via our website, abc.net.au. Just follow the prompts. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Hope you can tune in next week. Listener.